You're listening to the Mill Sunday School Podcast. Turn to the book of Job, chapter 1. We've been beginning Sunday School all this month with Job chapter 1, starting in verse 20, and reading this, this narrative, um, this saying of Job, what he says after all the trouble that is brought upon him. And so bad stuff happens to Job, and then we, here we are looking in Job chapter 1, starting in verse 20. And it says this, it says, At this Job got up, he tore his robe, shaved his head, he fell to the ground and worshipped. Everybody say, worship. Now, Job just experienced horrible suffering. All ten of his children died. He lost all of his uh, cattle, all of his property, all of his wealth. And it says he fell to the ground and he worshipped. And then it says that, he says this saying, Naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked I will depart. The Lord gave. The Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. That's how he responds to this horrible suffering. And so may we respond in that same way. I think that's the, that's the message of today that we'll get to. But let's pray. Let's welcome God here. So God, we do say to you that you are awesome. You are holy. You are mighty. You are a just, loving, and good God. And God, we worship you in all circumstances of life. May we worship you in the good times and in the desperately horrible times of suffering that that may come in this lifetime, that probably will come in this lifetime. God, may we worship you because you are worthy, you are just, you are good, you are trustworthy, you are awesome. And we love you, Jesus. We praise your name. And everybody screamed, amen. Um, Yeah, so we're talking about the book of Job. Um, Job is a guy that suffers a whole bunch. Job, we find out, suffers horribly and... um, he loses his children, he, he loses all his wealth, and he has three friends that come up to him and say some things that aren't very friendly. They're called Job's friends, but they're not really good friends because of what they say. They're called Job's comforters, and they're not very good comforters because of what they say. And here's the first thing that is said to Job. This is from Eliphaz the Tamanite, one of Job's three quote, friends. And this is what he says. Imagine the guy that's suffering and, and sitting in the dirt, has horrible uh, skin disease, is scratching his skin with a piece of pottery. He just lost his children. He is suffering. And, and someone has the audacity to say this. Consider now, who being innocent has ever perished? Where were the upright ever destroyed? As I have observed, those who plow evil and those who sow trouble reap it. At the breath of God, they perish. At the blast of his anger, they are no more. Can you imagine saying that to someone who has just lost a child, someone who has has a horrible skin disease, someone who has just lost maybe their house, all their wealth, and you say, those who plow evil, they reap evil. Basically, Job, you're suffering because you must have done something wrong. Isn't that a horrible thing to say to someone? Can you imagine saying that? Can you imagine you'd have to really hate that person in order to say to a suffering person, oh, you know, God always just hurts those that did something wrong. So therefore, Job, you must have done something wrong. And Job, throughout the book of Job, there's like 30 plus chapters of his friends pointing their fingers at Job and saying, Job, you must have messed up. You must have done something horrible. Just repent. And throughout the book, Job keeps the attitude, which is the correct attitude, that he didn't do anything wrong. 
Job never buckles in the book, at least not to the three friends, even though they keep saying, Job, you must have done wrong. He never says, oh yeah, you're right. He says, no, I did not do what was wrong. I've done what was right. I'm just suffering, etc., etc." Job never buckles, which reminds me of a story of when I was a kid, when I didn't do anything wrong, and yet I took the blame for doing something wrong. And it has to do with the story um, back in the day, about third grade, this girl that was in my Sunday school class got glasses. Maybe something like this little girl. That's not her, but that's a little girl with glasses on. And the little girl in my Sunday school class got glasses. Um, and she was a good fan. Like her family and my family were close friends. And so I was warned the whole week that this girl was going to come to Sunday school with glasses. And she didn't like wearing glasses. She didn't think she was pretty in glasses. And I c- could not, I will not, whatever you do. Like my parents are like, do not make fun of her. Do not call her four eyes. I don't know where the, the four eye, like where does that, what does that even mean? Like four eyes? I don't even know. But the, I, I got warned the entire week, do not make fun of her. She has glasses. She doesn't feel good about herself. And, and so I was just like, okay, fine. I won't make fun of her. I wasn't planning to make fun of her. I wasn't a bully as a little kid. I wasn't the kid that went around making fun of people. I was the kid that didn't even like talking to girls because girls in third grade had cooties. And so I had no intentions of making fun of her or calling her four eyes. And so it's like this much to do about nothing. Like, and so I got to Sunday school. There she was in glasses. I was like, okay, I'm just going to sit on the other side of the room. Not even going to look at her. Not going to make fun of her. And definitely not going to call her four eyes. And I think her parents must have called the Sunday school teacher and said, um, can you help her feel more comfortable because she has glasses and she doesn't like the way she looks in glasses, whatever. And so the Sunday school teacher started a discussion by which we went around the whole room and you would tell this girl how good she looked in glasses. It's just so random and weird. And so people were like, I think you look smart in those glasses. And she's like, thank you, thank you. And, 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 and it finally got to me, and I was just like, I'm not going to say anything. So I just said, you look good in glasses. They look fine. I would never call anyone four eyes. That's what I said. <laughs> because the whole week I was like, don't call her four eyes. So I just said, and I would never call anyone four eyes. And the whole class is like, you just called her four eyes. And I was like, no, I didn't. And the teacher was like, come out in the hall. And I came out in the hall, and she yelled at me for calling her four eyes. And I was like, I didn't call her four eyes. And, and the whole class was like, how dare you? And I was like, I didn't. And then at the end of Sunday school, my mom and dad came to pick me up. And, of course, mom and dad had a conversation with the teacher. The teacher said that I called this little girl four eyes, which I didn't. Um, and so I got in trouble. I, got, I think I got spanked, like, right there, like, in front of the class. Like, it was bad. And it was embarrassing. And then I got grounded from, like, cartoons, which was brutal. And the whole week, my parents said, how dare you? How could you have called her four eyes? And so I was supposed to go to Sunday school the next week and apologize profusely in front of the class for calling this little girl four eyes but i didn't call her four eyes but everyone said i did the teacher said i did the girl said i did my mom said i did my dad said i did the class said i called her four eyes even though i said what i said was i wouldn't dare call anyone four eyes um and so all of that everyone saying i did it i just buckled and said i apologize for calling you four eyes. I'm so sorry. Um, and that's, that just felt so dumb and weird because I didn't call her four eyes to this day. I know I didn't call her four eyes, but I just 
took the blame and, and just went with it because enough people had convinced me that I had said, your four eyes, or whatever. And I didn't. But that is unlike Job. Because here's Job in this picture, this painting. And all three friends are pointing at Job saying, Job, you must have done something wrong. There's 30 chapters plus of, of Job's friends trying to convince Job that he did something wrong. And yet we know from the grand narrative, we know that what's behind Job's heart. We know that in verse 1, uh, 8, and then in like 2, 3, we know that Job is the most upright, the most righteous man in all of the East. And we know that Job didn't do anything wrong. We know that. And, and Job knows that. And he doesn't buckle throughout the whole book of Job. We, we find that, that Job does not buckle. He did nothing wrong, and, and yet he suffered, which is what we're going to get to in today's lesson. And we find out a little later that, and, and throughout the book of Job, in a couple different places, that it's actually God is the one who brings the suffering to Job. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But God bringing suffering, um, God bringing suffering to the bad guy is usually okay, don't you think? Like if, if people are doing bad things, here's a painting uh, by William Eddy. It's called Before the Flood. And in this painting are people kind of in revelry. They're dancing and drinking and half of them are naked. So please don't um, lust after this painting. Um, but anyways, in the background of this painting is like floodwaters and a big storm coming to destroy these people because... They were wicked in the time before the flood, and none, none were righteous except for Noah, and God spared him. And so we read the, the, the flood story, and we're like, yeah, those bad guys got to suffer. Or the story of Egypt. This is another painting uh, by a guy named uh, John Martin, and he painted this painting of the plagues of Egypt. And of course, miss, many of you know the story of Moses in Egypt. Moses comes to Pharaoh and says, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, nah. And then uh, various plagues ends up being 10 plagues that God releases upon Egypt to these bad guys, the Egyptians, because the Egyptians are holding the uh, Israelites captive and as slaves. And so 10 plagues, and this painting I think is of the plague of the gnats, so the third of the 10 plagues where gnats just swarm all of Egypt. And God brought that. And we're kind of like, yeah, God brought the suffering because those guys were bad and those bad guys deserve suffering. And so we have all these stories in the Bible where God does justice. The bad people are doing bad things and God does something to them and they suffer. And we're like, yeah, eat it, bad guys. You're so bad. God's making you suffer. But what about Job? Once again, Job does nothing wrong. The exact line in verse 1-8 is, There's no one on earth like him. Job is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. And we, we find out that God is the one who brings suffering to Job. And there's this, this interaction that I don't want to just um, look over about God and Satan. Satan says, you know, he's righteous. He'll curse you if, if he suffers. And God says, I don't think so. And so Satan is allowed to, to do his worst to Job, brings suffering, brings uh, the d- disease, loses his family, loses all his stuff. And Job is suffering. But we really find out through the, the book of Job that, that God plays much more of a, of a, of a a play in this than just allowing Satan to do his thing. Because, of course, God is sovereign. And the thought I always think of is, like, okay, maybe there was this cosmic, you know, bet between God and Satan, but God knows everything, right? Say, right. Yeah, God knows everything. So, does God know the outcome of the bet? 
Of course he does. He knows everything. And so, and God is sovereign. And of course he could have stopped it. And we find out in the, in the narrative of this book of Job that God is actually the one who's kind of responsible, who brings the suffering on Job. And all this week I've been having various conversations with various people. And I'll mention, you know, you know, in the book of Job, it says that God's the one who brings the suffering on Job. And people would be like, what? It doesn't say that. You're an idiot, Joe. Um, it doesn't say that in the book of Job. And I'll say, well, actually it does. And they'll be like, dude, show me where it is. And I've actually shown three people this verse and just showing them that here, look, it's just plain black and white. God is the one who brings the suffering to Job. And it, it just, you stare at it and you look at it and you're like, really? Like, but Job was righteous. Why would God bring suffering? I thought God was good and loving and just, etc. Why would he bring the suffering to Job? And so here's the verse. If you want to write it down and look at it later, or look at it in your own Bibles. I try to make the, the font as big as possible so you could see it with your own eyes. But this is the very end of the book of Job, Job 42, 11. It's kind of a summary of like what happened. And then, and then it says all his brothers, Job's brothers, all of Job's sisters, everyone who had, had uh, known him before, known Job before the suffering, uh, before came and ate with him and in his house. And they comforted, comforted and consoled him, listen carefully, over all the trouble that the Lord brought on him. Who brought the trouble? The Lord. And it's like, gosh, are you serious? Like, that's what it actually says in black and white in your own Bibles. And I remember showing it to someone this week, uh, someone on staff at New Life. I mean, this would have really surprised me before looking at it and studying it as well. So I can't pick on anyone in particular. But I remember showing someone on staff at New Life, and they, they looked at it, or at least heard me talking about it, and they're like, well, I think the Hebrew probably says something different. I mean, it has to, right? And I was like, well, I mean, I'll look at the Hebrew. And so I looked at the Hebrew, and, and guess what? It, it, it's actually a little more intense, a little more darker. That word trouble there is a little more darker and more intense than maybe just the word trouble. And that's what the Lord brought. And there is, the Lord is doing the bringing here onto Job's life. He did the bringing, at least past tense, in this case, Job 42. And it's, it's, a, little, it's a little like surprising or humbling or just thought-provoking. You just sit there and you're like, Whoa, that really messes with my head. And, you know, all these verses about Jesus loves me, this I know, and God being good and God being just. I mean, how do you plug this verse or the story of Job into this loving goodness of God? And I want to, of course, um, tell you that God is loving good and just. And we'll talk about this uh, more as we, as we discover the book of Job. But this is like the real meat of the book of Job, the real hard pill to swallow that it is God who is the one who really takes the responsibility for bringing the trouble onto Job, bringing the suffering. And Job is a good guy. And so this book is uh, very important to us. It's very um, well worth our study here at the Mill Sunday School. I think sometimes pastors get accused of watering down things and just preaching happy, uh, good-feeling messages I don't know that I could get accused of that, at least today. Um, this is the Mill Sunday School. We're going to dig deep into this passage and um, study it. And uh, you may not leave feeling very good this morning, um, but I think that's okay because it's, we're, we're, we're reading and we're studying the Bible and we don't always have to come to God feeling good and happy and put on a church smiley face. Like sometimes things are not that good. And I think Job is one of these books that gives us this um, audacity to, to say, yeah, this world isn't very good. And, and we can question and think about God's goodness and his justice and, and try to wrap our minds around that. So um, before we go any further, 
some announcements. Anybody like announcements? I, I hope you do because we have a lot of them today, uh, quite a few. The first one, as always, is if you're new to the Mill Sunday School, if this is your first time, welcome to the Mill Sunday School. Uh, on all the tables should be a piece of paper. It says welcome card or something like that. If you fill that out, and then on your way out, there's a, a table in the back in the lobby. If you give it to the nice people there, they'll give you a CD. It's a mill worship CD. Uh, and the mill is uh, our Friday night meeting, which you all are invited to. It's kind of our main meeting. We do worship and a sermon. It's more of a church for college and 20-somethings. And uh, you can get a CD of a recording of some of the worship music we did a long time ago uh, and listen to it wherever you have a CD player. Does anybody even have a CD player anymore? Oh, you do? Okay. Like 10 of you do. Good. Um, I don't even know what to do with it. Like, what do you do with a CD? Like, stick it in your computer and make MP3s to put on your MP3 player? Like, whatever. Anyways, uh, so you could do that. Um, and, uh, okay, that's announcement number one. Announcement number two is for two weeks away, February 6th, is that we are not going to have Sunday school. You might wonder what's going on February 6th. It's not a holiday. It's just a normal Sunday. Uh, it is our leadership, mill leadership Retreat, And so once a year, um, all of the mill leadership, we go on a retreat. We give everybody, of course, it's on, it covers over Sunday, so we don't have Sunday school. Because guess what? We can't do Sunday school without the leaders. Did you ever wonder, like, just where the coffee comes from back there or where the food comes from or when you leave here and all the trash is all over the floor and on the tables? Like, who picks that up? The mill leaders. They do it. They do it all. They get here really early on Sunday mornings. In fact, if you're a mill leader, would you stand? If you're a mill Sunday school leader or a mill Friday night leader, don't, don't, let's, yeah. Sweet. Yeah. So thank you guys for being on the team and serving. And, and so in two weeks, February 6th, if you want to put it in the calendar so you don't accidentally wake up and come here early for Sunday school, we will not be having Sunday school in two weeks. Uh, February 6th, we will be on a leaders, uh, mill leaders retreat. And, um, yeah, and if, you, and if you're in here and you're like, oh, how do, you, how do you become a mill leader? How do you get involved in this special secret club? Um, you can talk to the people on your way out or come talk to me. I'll tell you uh, how to get involved in mill leadership if that's something you're interested in. So uh, that's the announcement. Uh, another announcement is uh, kind of cool um, is that I wrote a book. Do you know that? Yeah, I, I, I've been writing for like a year. Uh, it was a really cool story that I, I wrote it with another guy here at church. Many of you may know Rob Stennett, the director of The Thorn. He's a really cool dude. And um, he, he's like already a published author, wrote, wrote fiction books. And the publishing company asked him to write a college book that's cool and fun. And, and that's short of the story. And so he asked me to ride his train and help him write a book. And so I got to do that. And so today the, the book, New Life Church bookstore finally has them. So you could go over there and actually buy a book um, that, that I wrote. I, I don't like to brag about myself. <laughs> Let me rephrase that. I love bragging about myself. Um, <laughs> so I wrote a book. Anyways, uh, yeah, I just thought I should at least announce it because it's like if you see it in the bookstore and you're like, dude, Joe wrote a book? Why didn't he tell anybody? Well, now I told you. So anyways, one more announcement. Um, and and the, the announcement about the book is like a silly, dumb announcement compared to this next announcement, which is much cooler and better. And it has to do with me and my wife. Uh, my wife's like over here. Could you stand up? Uh, my wife and I are pregnant. Yeah. Thank you. 
And uh, so we're pregnant. We're a couple months along. We'll ha- it's, uh, the baby is due in the summer, in like July. July 27th is the exact day. And uh, we, do, we don't know yet if it's a boy or a girl. But if you look up at the screen, you will see a picture of our baby. Isn't that precious? It looks just like me, don't you think? <laughs> I mean, you probably can't tell that the baby's upside down and the head is kind of facing this way and there's a leg sticking up. But I can because I'm the dad uh, and I know my child. Um, if you look really closely, there's a baby's hand. I don't know if you could see that. You, you might not even be able to see it. But you could see like four little fingers and a thumb if you like look really close and like squint your eyes. Um, but but that's, that's my baby. So uh, that's the ultrasound thing. So anyways... All right, how do you you transfer from that back to the book of Job? I don't know. Uh, Because, like, having a baby is, like, the most exciting, wonderful thing, and the the book of Job is probably the most saddest uh, story in all of the Bible. And so uh, let's jump right back into the book of Job, shall we? (sighs) All right. I've been reading a book. Uh, let's see. I think I have it here, actually. Uh, it's called, has anyone ever heard of this book? It's called Your God is Too Safe by Mark Buchanan. Uh, let me see. Get it out here. It looks just like this. Has anybody read this book? It was pretty popular. No one? Um, the title kind of says a lot. It kind of says it all. Your God is Too Safe. And it's, it's a book about how sometimes we in American evangelical Christianity, uh, we always have nice things to say about God. And, of course, God is loving and good, and he is nice. And, uh, well, maybe not nice. Um, he's not safe, I guess is a better way to put it. And, and that's what this book is about. Your God is too safe. So he's accusing uh, people of, of, of having a God that's too safe. Like, oh, God will, you know, he'll just forgive all my sins and he loves me and, and he doesn't require anything of me. And of course, there's some truth to that. He will forgive all your sins. He does love you. But sometimes that just creates this buzz in your own head and you begin thinking about maybe God is like Santa Claus or God as a genie in the bottle that, you know, God doesn't require anything of you. He just is this nice guy in the sky that that likes to give you stuff and and so this guy mark buchanan wrote this book your god is too safe and on page 31 i thought this i underlined this it says this so a safe god a god that you know is too safe is not the god of the bible Uh, a safe god asks nothing of us gives nothing to us he never drives us to our knees in hungry desperate prayer he never Sets us on our feet in fierce, fixed determination. He never makes us bold to dance. A safe God never whispers in our ears anything but greeting card slogans. So the safe God, the God that maybe some of us have in our heads. I know that at times I have this image of God that's just too safe. A safe God never whispers anything in our ear other than greeting card slogans. And certainly never asks that we embarrass ourselves by shouting from the rooftops. A safe God never inspires awe, nor worship, nor sacrifice. And I think the God of the Bible, the God especially of the book of Job is not a safe God, and, and maybe isn't even a nice God. Um, and, and so that, that is this thing we need to get our minds around, that he is, he is much bigger than a Santa Claus God, much bigger than a genie-in-the-bottle God. And, and the book of Job really shows us that. Here's another book that some of you may be familiar with, the Jesus Story Book Bible. Has anybody seen this? As soon as Erica's parents knew that we were pregnant, they bought us this. So we could read it to the embryo that's in Erica's belly. I don't know. Whatever. Um, 
So I was looking through this book, and, and this book has like a nice pictures. It's like pictures of things, and you, it's, it's it's obviously a children's Bible, and it's obviously much shorter. It has a lot of pictures than a than a real Bible, and it just covers these stories. It has uh, Abraham in here, and David and Goliath, of course, of course, Joseph and the coat of many colors, and baby Jesus is in here, and Jonah is in here. All these nice, wonderful stories, and it kind of goes goes in order from, you know, Genesis to uh, the, the New Testament into um, the stories of Jesus and stuff. And so I was flipping through here, and I was looking for the book of Job in here, and like, what did this children's book do with the book of Job? And I was flipping through and hoping to find the book of Job in here, because, I mean, the book of Job is a pretty big book of the Bible, 42 chapters. It's one of the larger books, especially a book about all one person. You would think that the book of Job is in this children's book, but it is not in the Jesus Storybook Bible. And I thought, why isn't this book in this children's book? And I got to thinking, like, duh. Like, the book of Job is complex. It's deep theological. Uh, The nature of this book is not Christianity 101. Most of the stories in this children's book are summarized in one page with, with a picture at the bottom. And I don't know that you can do that with the book of Job, like, what would it say? Like, this man suffered because God brought him into suffering, but in the end, he gets some other kids? Like, how does that, like, how do you put that in storybook form? It just doesn't, it doesn't make for a good children's story. And so, the book of Job is not Christianity 101. And what I mean by Christianity 101 is like introduction to Christianity, simple Christianity. It's not, the, it's not definitely not the first book of the Bible you should, like if someone becomes a Christian and I give them a Bible and, and they say, where should I start, man? I will not tell them, dude, Job chapter 1, verse 1. Start there and read 42 chapters of the most confusing narrative about God bringing suffering to a person for no reason. Man, it's a great book. Like that, I would tell him to start it was like baby Jesus. That's a good place to start, or maybe even Genesis and the story of evil and, and humans uh, sinning, and like get this context for for God loving, but then humans turning away from God. I would not have them start with the book of Job because the deeper I get, as I've studied this book, I've studied a lot this month in uh, preparing lectures for the for, for Sunday school. It seems like the deeper it gets, the deeper it goes. And maybe you know subjects like that. Maybe some of you are in school studying a certain subject, and you're like, oh, this is easy. Like, I studied uh, biology, and I started studying biology. I took biology 101, and I was like, oh, this is sweet. You know, I know a little bit about the respiration and, and how plants work and photosynthesis. And then I took another class, like plant biology and a, bio, a botany. And it was like, oh, this is much deeper than I thought. And then I took, like, cellular biology and then chemistry and then genetics. And then the, the deeper I got into the study of biology, I realized I'm not even scratching the surface. This goes much deeper the deeper I go. And so I've kind of found that with the book of Job, that, that the, especially this, this deal with suffering and, and this question of why would God bring suffering on a righteous man? And, and we'll kind of get to that question today. But the answer, once again, we began this whole month by saying, you know, the answers in the book of Job are few and far between. The questions are many. And so I want to give you a discussion question, which just means that you can turn to some people around you. Uh, if, you're, if you're at a small table, just jump into another table. I promise they'll usually say yes. If they say, you can't sit here, then come, come up here and we'll be in a group together. But anyways... Uh, discuss this, and, and this isn't like a fun 
really fun discussion question. It's kind of a sad discussion question, but I think it, it's, it's an important discussion question. And it's this, what causes people to lose faith in bad times? And maybe you all know of someone that has totally given up the faith. Uh, they were Christians, they were Bible-believing in Jesus, and then maybe something happened, and maybe they lost someone close to them or had a bad set of circumstances, and maybe they turned against God. And why would God allow this? Why would God do this? Why would, where is God in all this? I don't even think I could believe in him anymore. I can't believe in a God that would, say, allow my um, uh, mom to die of cancer or, or the, whatever um, circumstance maybe that you know of, and maybe you've gone through your own time of testing and like something bad happened in your life. You question, where is God in all this? And so I just want you to maybe bring some stories to the, to the table. What causes people to lose faith in bad times? So discuss that in a couple minutes. Ready, get set, discuss, go. If you could wrap up, um, that we have some, some dudes with some mics uh, in the back. And I just thought if, if anyone wanted to share with all of us uh, maybe something they talked about at their table, you could, although it's a very hard question. So if no one shares, um, I'll be okay with that. But um, does anybody want to share something? Anyone bold enough? Yes, we, a, a dude up here. And then if anybody else uh, wants to share, get the attention of the other mic guy. Yes, sir. Thank you. Like. My, like, my mom's been sick my whole life, and, you know, there's been times where, you know, you just, like, don't want to feel anything. Yeah. You know, like, you know, we just, like, live in hospitals a lot, and so, like, when you don't want to feel anything because it just sucks so bad, you just numb yeah. everything out. But I think a result of that is, like, because you want to numb out all the crappy stuff, you also numb out, like, the pursuit of God at the same time because you just don't want to feel anything at all. Yeah. You know, because you're just so, like, bummed out. And so I think, like, for me, sometimes when I've, like, lost faith, like, when we live in the hospitals and stuff, like, it's just because I just don't want to feel anything. I'd much rather just kind of be neutral and just hang out because it's a lot harder to pursue God versus, like, when you can just, yeah. I guess, <clears throat> be neutral. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And so then just a result of that is just no faith at all because you're not pursuing God in the first place. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for sharing. Anybody else? I actually had a friend... Um, we started going back to church together. It was my coming back to the faith. And she wasn't raised in the church, but she was learning. Like, she had come in, she had learned that she was forgiven, all this amazing stuff. And then her mom had a horrible car accident where she almost died. Yeah. And then survived that, but three months later found out she had cancer and then died a year later. Mm. And from that moment on, she hated God. She's yeah. like, my mom was the most important person in my life, and God took her away. Why would he do that? And it's really difficult to be in that situation when you're coming back to the faith. Because yeah. understanding that God's reason for doing things is above and beyond what we can understand. Yeah. And really, it's, that's the biggest part of faith, is that you don't know. And yeah. just, letting, you know, just letting God have his reasons for doing things it's the most difficult thing to understand because we don't have a final answer for it the biggest thing that can happen with those moments is empathy and i think being able to stand by somebody is just showing christ's love even in the hard times instead of being like joe like well she must have done something wrong and yeah. obviously she horrible you know and right. you don't want to do that because then you're just going to destroy 
their faith or you're going to destroy what foundation they do have. Yeah. So it's just very tedious. Yeah, thank you for sharing. Anybody else? Yeah, in the back and then and then up here. Yes, ma'am. Well, I think a big thing, too, we were talking about was just the idea of, I think with people, um, when we go through something hard, we're afraid to get upset with God. We're afraid to have an emotion about it, of being, God, why am I going through this? God, this yeah. hurts. What's wrong? So instead of engaging in God, instead of talking with God, we're so afraid of that because we don't see God as a relationship that we, we pull back instead. Yeah. So instead of engaging in a relationship and say, God, I don't, I'm, I'm hurting. Why are you doing this? And asking those questions like Job does, yeah. we completely retreat and therefore try and take it on ourselves to fix the problem and then nothing gets accomplished. Yeah. Thank you for sharing. That's, that's very true. Yes. Um, about six years ago, my dad was in the hospital. And I almost was one of those people who walked away from God. And I remember coming to the mill. And a good friend of mine, he pulled me aside. And he's like, Liz, is your faith based on what God can do for you? Or is it based on who God is? I mean, Christ went to the cross for us. And he suffered for our sins. So why am I questioning what God is doing in my life? And I'll never take that, that moment back. I mean, now knowing and seeing what people go through, being able to have that empathy and understand like where you are. I think some people just don't have that solid faith and friends around them to come alongside of them and say, hey, don't forget the things that God has done and the things that Christ has suffered. Even as you're suffering, Christ suffered just as much. Yeah, it's a good thought. Thank you for sharing as well. I think there's a a word I want to give you um, as we kind of conclude this time. It's theodicy. And the word theodicy means, you know, the, the justice of God. And I think that is very often the thing that, that in our heads during these times, uh, many of you touched on this idea when you shared, and I thank you for sharing um, about when when people accuse God of of you know taking someone away or not being there in this situation, or why would you allow this to happen, God? They're questioning: Is God just? Like like I, I just I'm thinking of the the girl that just gave her life to Christ, started coming to church, and, and then her mom uh, gets in a car crash, and then she dies of cancer. And it's like, you know, God, I'm doing this good thing for you. I'm, I'm believing in you, and now you've done this to me, and you've taken my mom away. You know, are you just? Are you a just God, or are you a mean God? Because I don't want to believe in a mean God. Therefore, I don't believe in you anymore. And so this word, theodicy, is, is, is maybe a new word to you. I know it was a new word to me as I was studying the, the justice of God. And I think it's a word that it's broken down that just means God and, and the diocese is, is justice, God's justice. Is God a just God? Um, and, the, and the word is theodicy. It's a big word. Do you want to say it on three? One, two, three, theodicy. Yeah, and it's, it's this very important idea in the context of the book of Job because Job, in various places, questions God's justice. In fact, I think Job comes to the conclusion that God is not just. And I'll stop there and pause there and say, God is just. We'll get to that in a second. But in the midst of the book of Job, Job says that, that he is, he's decided that God is not just. Just because once again, Job does nothing wrong. God brings this suffering onto Job, and he says something like this. It's Job chapter 27. Job continues his discourse, and so he's talking to his friends. It's Job talking to the three friends that were just talking to him, and Job says this As surely as God lives, who has denied me justice? So as surely as God lives, it's like the one who has denied me justice. That's what Job thinks about God in the midst of this circumstance. He has decided, 
God is the one who has denied him justice. Um, the Almighty who has made my life bitter. So once again, Job has decided God is the one that has made his life bitter and God is not just. And then it continues, as long as I live, have life within me, the breath of God in my nostrils, my lips will not say anything wicked and my tongue will not utter lies. I will never admit that you are right. So he's talking to his three friends. The three friends are saying, Job, you must have done something wrong. Job here says, I will never admit that you're right because Job's righteous. He didn't do anything wrong. Until the day I die, I will not deny my integrity. And so throughout the book of Job, you see it kind of over and over again. Job does not think God is, is nice. Job, Job does not think God is even just. And we see it here in this passage, which reminds me of a, of a story I heard, um, a, a sad story, a, a horrible story of, of the Holocaust. And so many of you probably had to study the Holocaust and, and World War II. You know that um, 9 million Jews were, were killed. That was two-thirds of the Jewish population in Europe at the time were led to concentration camps where they were burned, in fact, or killed. The, the very word Holocaust means whole burning, That's just wiping out a, a slaying of all the Jewish people during, the, during World War II. And, and, of course, we know about that. I heard a story that rabbis got together in one of the concentration camps in the midst of all this suffering and death and starvation in a concentration camp. Rabbis, Jewish rabbis got together and they talked day after day for several days. They, they looked at the scriptures. Maybe they looked at the book of Job. They looked at other scriptures. They looked around them and saw all this suffering. And they asked the question, is God just? Is he a just God? And these rabbis, after several days of, of talking together, looking around them, looking into the scriptures, they decided God is not just. And they got up and they left and they worshipped the Lord. They decided he wasn't just, but they got up from the place of communicating with each other and deciding that he wasn't just. They got up and they worshipped God. And I tell you that story because I think that's really what Job does. He decides God is not just, but the passage we read today says, you know, after all that had happened, all the suffering, Job worships God and he says, naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I will depart this world, praise be the name of the Lord. And so th this idea that I'll come back to as we close in, in, a, in, a, in about 10 minutes is this, this idea that no matter what your life circumstances are, God, you know, the, 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 the true, the right way to respond in all circumstances of life is worship. And thank goodness we have other passage, passages in the Bible to say that God is just. For instance, uh, 2 Thessalonians 1.6, God is just. Uh, 1 John 4.16, and we know and rely on the love of God he has for us, and that God is love. Lamentations 3.22, because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. John 3.16, a very famous Bible verse. For God so loved the world, he loves the world, that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Finally, James 5.11, a passage in the New Testament about Job. As you know, we count uh, as blessings those who have persevered. For you've heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about him. Namely, that God restores him to wealth and gives him uh, another family. Uh, that the Lord is full of compassion 
and mercy. And then, of course, we have the passage in which God himself speaks to Job, which I will argue is where, Job, where God says he is a just God. So Job comes to this conclusion that God is not just. And, and throughout the book of Job, Job keeps asking for this day in court. Job keeps asking, God, would you come and tell me what I did wrong? Would you bring your charges against me, God? So Job is saying, where's my day in court? Where's, for goodness sakes, I need a mediator between me and God, which is, by the way, what we might talk about next Sunday, this idea that ultimately that would be fulfilled in Jesus being fully God and fully human. But Job is asking, where's my mediator? Where's my lawyer? Where are the charges brought against me? God, why won't you show up and tell me why I'm suffering? God, why why won't you show up? Why won't you give me this day in court and at least bring your charges against me so that I know why I'm suffering? And then, of course, we have Job chapter 38, where Job kind of gets his prayer answered. He gets God to come and speak to him. And God says, he comes and speaks in a whirlwind. He says, who is this who darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. You, you know, you've got your chance to question me. Now stand and hold yourself. Brace yourself like a man because I'm about to question you. This is God speaking to Job. And he's like, ask Job these rhetorical questions. Tell me if you understand the, the, the earth's foundations. Tell me if you understand the sea and why the sea can only come thus far and no further. Tell me if you understand the clouds and, and how the, the foundations of the earth. Tell me if you have ever given orders to the morning. You know, he's basically saying, I'm God and you're not. And then finally, Job chapter 40, two chapters into this discourse of God's, he says this. So this is God speaking to Job. Job, uh, would you discredit my justice? Basically, Job's been doing that the entire book, saying God is not just. And so God is saying, would you discredit my, my justice? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? Which is pretty much what Job does. He condemns God to say that he is righteous. And Job is righteous, but he says God is denying him justice. So here's God is saying, you know, why would you even, you know, how dare you question my justice is, is how I see this passage. Verse 9 says, do you have an arm like God's and can your voice thunder like his? Then adorn, adorn yourself with glory and splendor and clothe yourself in honor and majesty. God is saying, Job, you're, you're so... You know, you, you've got some things right uh, about, you know, this whole thing that, that you were righteous, but don't you dare question my justice. I am, I am a just God, is what God is saying. And then Job gets to speak, and Job pretty much just says, I'll shut up. He says this, Job chapter 40, Then Job answered the Lord, I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I will put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer. Twice, and I will say no more. And then God continues speaking, and, and the, the thing that God brings to this conversation is he says, Consider the Leviathan. And this, this, this sea creature, this beast that, that we mo mainly think now is a whale, um, that this creature that is awesome and wonderful and it's horrible and, and just this creature that you can't put a leash on it and give it to your little girls. That is, is what God actually says. You can't uh, wrestle with it. You know, you'll, if you lay a hand on it, you'll, you'll remember the struggle and you will never do that again. And it says about the Leviathan, it leaves a glistening wake behind it. One would think that the, the, the deep water had white hair. Nothing in the earth is its equal. A creature without fear. It looks down on all that are haughty. It is king over all that are proud. And that is the, the conclusion of what 
God has to say to Job, consider this great sea creature, which I think is an obvious analogy that, you know, this biggest creature that the ancient Jewish world knew, you know, like the ancient Jewish world had like little wooden ships. And you, like you don't want to go out with a little wooden ship if there's whales around that could like just crush you or just, you know, flip their tail and knock your whole boat over. And so God is obviously, at least obvious to me, comparing himself to this sea creature and saying this sea creature can do whatever he wants. He's mighty and awesome and horrible and he could do whatever he wants. And then Job gets the final, final word in Job 42, which he basically just says, I'll be quiet again. He says, Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this who obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now, I will speak to you and question you and you shall answer me. My my ears have heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. And this is the last line of Job, the, the conclusion of the dialogue of the whole book. Therefore, I despise myself. I repent in dust and ashes. So Job, at the beginning, before God speaks, bring, says, you know, God isn't just. He's, I'm righteous, and God has brought me suffering. And basically, God just says, I am just. You know, I am God, and, and I can do whatever I want because I created all of this. And it kind of reminds me of a... Of a when I was a kid, I used to, I lived in New York and there was a lot of snow there and we used to build snowmen and, and my mom would always get so mad at this because we'd build like wonderful, beautiful snowmen. And then me and my brother would like name the snowman after some kid, like neighbor kid. And then we'd uh, <laughs> like jump out of a tree with our elbow and like smash the snowman <laughs> and kick the snowman and just destroy the snowman. And my mom was like, why would you do that? And it was like, well, we made it. We can do it if we want to, which is kind of like a horrible analogy to, to the book of Job. But, and I've really, like this week, I've really struggled. Like, is that a good analogy? Um, and it's, it's not good in that God, you know, God is, God is good. And my intentions of making the snowman were not good. I named it after a neighbor kid. But this idea that, that God can destroy what he made. Like, God is just because he made it. And if he made it, he could take it away. Job's conversation with God is, you know, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the, the name of the Lord. And it's this, this he, God is God. He can do what he wants. And last week we talked about how the clouds, we don't really understand the clouds. Even to this day, the clouds, you know, do what they want. We can't really predict them more than a day or two ahead of time and what weather they will bring. But God, he is just and he is God because he made it all, and he understands it all. He has the big purpose. He has the end in mind. He is just. God is just. He, God is God. He made it all. He could take it all away. And his justice is higher than our justice. And he is definitely not a safe God. And, of course, the book title that I already talked about, Your God is Too Safe, probably comes from this, this conversation about Aslan in the, the Chronicles of Narnia. This passage where the Lucy's talking, this the girl character is talking to uh, Mr. Beaver, another character in this book, and Lucy says, "You know, like is is Aslan safe?" And Mr. Beaver says, "Oh no, you know, who said anything about being safe? He's definitely not safe, but he's good." Yeah, this this line in the story is that God isn't maybe safe. He's maybe not even nice, but he is a good God, and he is a just God, and despite suffering. And we'll talk more about this next week. We'll talk about the problem of evil next week. But, but God does bring 
suffering. He brings suffering for all kinds of reasons to punish those who, that do evil, to, to you know, to, to make the world right. He you know causes those to suffer, those that need to suffer. But sometimes, like in the book of Job, and, and sometimes, like maybe many of you stood up and said, you know, I knew a friend that, you know, they were you know, just gave their life to Christ, and then something bad happened to them. Sometimes God brings suffering, and we don't know. Why? And sometimes God allows suffering to happen, and we don't know why. And yet suffering, I'll talk more about this next week, uh, maybe in in and of itself isn't an evil. I don't think God brings evil. But I do see in Scripture, like the book of Job, God bringing suffering. And and maybe this this quote that's on the back of your your skillet, we always have a sweet quote of the day. Sometimes C.S. Lewis gets on there because he's a pretty cool writer. And he says this, and this is in the book, The Problem of Pain. It says, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And so in the midst of suffering, even, even, I mean, Job came to this conclusion that God is not just, and yet he still worships the Lord. And so the question today that I will leave you, it's not a very happy question But the question, will we worship God in all circumstances of life like Job did? And in suffering, in verse 20 of chapter 1, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. He fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked I will depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. But may the name of the Lord be praised. So God, we do praise you this morning. God, we do worship you. God, we do know that you are a just God, that your justice is outside of our minds. It's outside of this world. How we can ever understand it is beyond us. But God, we do believe that you are just, that you are good, that you are a loving God. We do put our trust in you. We we give you worship in all circumstances of life. God, we praise you. We do worship you. Amen. Amen. All right, everybody. You're officially dismissed. We'll see you next week for the conclusion of the book of Job. Peace out.